I have one or two saving factors. One is that I love people, and I love music. I love music so much, it keeps me glued to life, even when I'm most depressed. And I love people so much that it's hard for me to be alone. Hello, welcome to the extra credits of flawed men and the underdeveloped woman behind them. I'm Trey. (laughs) And I'm Kelsey. Today we are discussing our first ever triple feature on the show, Maestro, The Iron Claw, and Ferrari. Yeah, I am excited to talk about these movies today. We decided to do them together because we realize they have similar thematic through lines, right? Like in a lot of ways, they are focusing on variations of the great man myth. Yeah, and they're also semi-biographical dramas too. And I think to some extent, they are portraits of artists, of like creative geniuses from classical music to wrestling to engineers or race car drivers. But I think you're right. All the films are interested in how their lead characters are very successful but they are also performative and are also deeply troubled men. Yeah. First in Maestro, you have Leonard Bernstein as a man living three identities. He is a composer. He is a father and a husband, and he's also a queer Jewish man. And the film explores all those different identities. Then in the Iron Claw, you have the brothers of the pro wrestling Von Erich family who all have to perform their act as wrestlers. And they also have to perform that they are physically mentally and emotionally healthy even when they are not yeah and they have to perform that they also trust their father which is very complicated and finally in ferrari you have the auto industry tycoon and enzo ferrari who is acting as a patriarch like figure in three different roles he's taken the responsibility of kind of directing three families in this movie it's a really complex film first with his business as this unforgiving autocrat and then also as an inspirational figure for post-war Italy, and then also as like a patriarch for his wife, Laura, who is grieving the loss of their son, and he also secretly has this other family with Lena and their son. Right, yeah. I'm so glad that you outlined that at the top of the pod because we are going to have individual conversations about each movie here, mm-hmm. but I think it's interesting to to look at the thematic through line and that these stories are explicitly interested in exploring the double or triple lives even that the men at the center are living. And some of the movies do the, the story or, or capture the societal pressures Mm -hmm. that are creating this existence for the men in the movie. And I think Maestro does a better job of that. And Ironclaw does maybe a better job of that than like Ferrari. Um, We can debate that today a little bit. Okay. Yeah. I think we have different opinions. Oh, interesting. How successful some of these are. Yeah. Yeah. But all the films are certainly interested in examining how a fractured person impacts people around them mm-hmm. and their own experience with isolation. And so I think those will kind of be the two conversations that we have about each of the movies today, which is one, how the person who's being impacted in the movie is usually like the woman in the, yes. the person, you know, the man at the center's life or the great man at the center of the movie. And so we see this, woman behind the man trope, right? And the women characters are not fully realized. And then the second thing we'll probably talk about is that idea of balance that the filmmakers have in trying to create that storyline in their, their characters and the tension with their characters, balancing that with the admiration they have for this like creative genius, right? That is Enzo Ferrari, or that is uh, a maestro. Um, Right. So, The problem with every great man movie is how much of this is a great man film versus a deconstruction of the great man film. Yeah. 
And these films, because they're coming out, I think the reason for this is because they're coming out in the 2020s now. They're trying to insert this uh, subplot of the great woman behind the great man trope yeah. and then trying to develop that. But just enough to get credit for it, not actually enough to become a successful uh, subversive movie where you kind of uh, provoke the audience to actually believe that the man was actually never great the whole time. Mm. Um, so, the, yeah, I think there'll be an interesting conversation today. I think critically... You're totally right. Each of these three films necessitates this woman figure, maybe even multiple women in the periphery. And I think all three movies are good. And I think one or two of them might even be very good after sitting with them for a few weeks now. Mm -hmm. But they do struggle to fully realize their ideas because they are challenged by this balancing act of the role of the men and the role of the woman in the stories. And you could argue that all three films are about toxic masculinity and that is maybe the major through line even if it is an overused concept mm -hmm. in films but most of the women in these three films are essential to that through line working and to the movies working and the women were really used i thought some more than others it, as a driving tension or a conflict or emotional plot devices yeah. at worst so i think the movies could follow through with their commentaries on power by using women in these plot device ways and they were the films seemed more interested in the ego of the men and the ambition of the men. And the movies did struggle in terms of like admiring versus critiquing that. And ultimately, the women are these like underdeveloped accessories to continue the the male commentary or that narrative. Yeah. And before we get into everything today, maybe we should talk a little bit about this trope that's been used a lot this year yeah. in movies. This the woman behind the man, right? Yeah. Uh, trope. And it's interesting because, you know, we obviously do a lot of prep for episodes. And so we often hear filmmakers with good intentions talk about how the, the character who is a woman in the story is this like major character or talks about their arc as if uh, they are balanced or, or developed. as developed exactly yeah. like as the, the character who is a man at the center of their story. Yeah. And I, I don't want to like come for anyone, you know what I mean? Um, but it does seem like a marketing thing, right? Because yes. in like Maestro, which we'll talk about today or in something like Killers of the Flower Moon even, sure. right? Um, that's just not the case. Yeah. Or Oppenheimer, right? right. And, and so I think, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that because it's interesting that it's been used so much this year. I think a lot of films in the 2020s have been operating confidently that they have been successful at depicting women behind the scenes of a behind every great man is a greater woman. Yeah. I yeah. think that's almost like the new trope um, where it feels like it's trying to argue not only is there a woman behind the great man, but the great man never existed and it was actually the great woman. Yeah. And it feels like like capitalist feminism. It doesn't feel like actually trying to provoke a message. Yeah. And I think that trope has certainly evolved to be more inclusive throughout film history. I don't, but I don't think there is a single great man movie this year that has totally developed a woman character behind the scenes. And because of that, even well-intended projects sort of paradoxically become like these vain narratives they're critical of. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right because the studios and filmmakers are, are doing exactly that. They're like focused on a man, but then they'll give us a scene where it's like, see that woman in the corner back yeah. there. Like she was actually <laughs> driving him or like, she was actually really important. We're going to give you one scene yeah. to show you why. And like, 
I, I think that's kind of out of focus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think a good example of that is probably like the Emily Blunt scene in Oppenheimer, right? Where mm-hmm. it's supposed to be showing that she can intellectually hold her own. And what we get is like her saying, I don't like your phrase. Right. That's like her major moment. And it just feels again, like all these women characters are just half developed uh, or stereotypes. Yeah. yeah. So, I, and they're still, again, like you were saying, like used to, portray or prop up a man's genius or their guilt yes exactly i think a few examples like oppenheimer being a major one that's a film praised by critics um and kitty's character emily blunt's character has also been praised um for her basically five minutes worth of dialogue in the film by hollywood media at large too like possibly getting an oscar nomination in the next few weeks and then you have ridley scott's napoleon with josephine played by Vanessa Kirby um, being another example or even the more complicated example you brought up a second ago with Scorsese's direction in Killers of the Flower Moon when Ernest Burkhart poisons Molly played by Lily Gladstone and she was bedridden for the second half of the film and then the movie kind of lets De Niro and DiCaprio and Brendan Fraser shine in jail cells Mm -hmm. and in courtrooms and I think you could argue that all of those films are you know, being historically accurate maybe sure. to the times and the novels they're adapted from. But you could also argue that they aren't documentaries yeah. and they should have done a better job at using the capital that they had as projects that are like $150 million budgets. Yeah. And also you have amazing actors, right? Like, oh yeah. Give them more to do. Right. Yeah. I think there's obviously a pattern of not giving these women enough to do and male filmmakers and writers are continuing to explore obstacles of kind of like women as plot devices to make great men appear more flawed. And ironically, those men are also getting more screen time or nuanced characters or more money. Hello, Leonardo DiCaprio, Killers of the Flower Moon. And I think 2023 specifically in the biopics and the historical dramas this year are all sort of guilty of kind of like virtue signaling gender politics or social justice. Exactly. Yeah. Without actually being a provocative, progressive woman forward text. And I think like we said just a second ago, these are, these are movies and they are entertaining um, and they're trying to follow actually like important histories. And so they are also very necessary films that are kind of transgressive when you look at the landscape of blockbusters today. But if you want to platform women more than just um, keeping them as like uh, these periphery characters, then just do that. They aren't writing textbooks like movies like Across the Spider-Verse is an animated film uh, that is incredible. And it's secretly a spider woman movie. And yeah. Look at Gwen in that film. Like that is how you do like we're kind of subverting the expectation of this being a normal Spider-Man movie. And it was so successful. And then another film that we love this year, Bo is Afraid. Uh, I actually think it does the great man movie the best this year. It like satirizes <laughs> the great man theory. It platforms a fragile yeah. <laughs> man who blames woman in his life for his troubles and his first fling and his mother. And then he basically self-destructs yeah. because he won't take responsibility. So Ari Aster is like a master filmmaker yeah. for doing something like that. So I'm not even sure you can have a developed woman in a great man deconstruction but i think honestly bo is afraid maybe did it best god i love i love bo is afraid so much no i i think you're right there and it's something that we'll definitely talk about in maestro specifically Mm -hmm. because that is a movie that's really trying to or claiming to have a balanced like 
yeah. character. Cooper's out here saying that. Yeah. yeah. He, he's saying that Carrie Mulligan is the main character. Right. And that's just not true. Which is why. <laughs> yeah. It's just. She might be the best performance of the entire film or all three of these movies with Penelope Cruz, honestly. And that's just so inaccurate yeah. to argue that she's the main character of Maestro. Right. And then there are, are I guess, moments we'll talk about in Iron Claw, which I can see a little bit from a story perspective. You know, that movie is not claiming to have a. Yeah, necessarily a right a woman behind the man that's balanced, but still is something that is a uh, kind of a, a glaring like hole in the movie when we have moments uh, that are that are vulnerable but are not even like there's no dialogue. Right? That that movie is trying to talk about masculinity in a vacuum between fathers and sons, yeah, and that creates a complicated uh, conversation when you actually do have like half developed woman in the background. Right. Right. Like yeah. Maura Tierney's character as the, the mother of the Von Eric family. Like that's a really good example of a character that could have gotten easily more developed. And mm-hmm. then therefore you could have had more of a critical lens on the father, which is what that movie really struggles to do, which we'll definitely talk about today. And actually just when you said that, uh, I guess the kind of great man myth is the Von Eric father. Yeah, rather truly. than yeah. Zach Efron. It's like how Zach is also being, Right. Uh, impacted by that. By the way, I need to look up the cast name because I'm realizing I don't know any of the brothers' names anymore <laughs> since we watched it a while ago. I got ago. them up. We're going to okay, be okay. <laughs> but you could also argue, though, the Zac Efron character, there is something about the great man myth there, too, because Lily James is sort of this, like, half-developed character in the background as well. And that's, like, an excellent actor. Well, Another like him, one. Yeah, trying to live up to the great man myth, which is interesting. Yeah, live up yeah. to the expectations of his, quote-unquote, great man But, father. yeah, sorry, yeah. Lily James is Fantastic. so great. Yeah, yeah. give her more yeah it's so easy just give them more to do um all and right it's also not like these movies don't have massive budgets like hire women yeah. to help you if that is your actual goal like bradley cooper like yeah. hire people to to help you out with that yeah it's well i think he had some other goals uh with that cathedral <laughs> <laughs> five minute scene of him copying did you uh, know it was Leonard one Bernstein. take I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was one take. All right. So there are. Do you know are... he felt like, like the heavens cleared and. Did he was... say that? I think he okay. said something. Like, I don't know. This is a pro Bradley Cooper podcast. No, but yeah. We are going to be. Like and we a... like all these movies, by the well way. Well balanced today yeah. about liking them and being critical of them. That's what people come to listen to us for. All right. So there are timestamps for each of our discussions in the description of this episode. So if listeners want to skip to a specific film, you can do that. I think we're going to start with Maestro because everyone has immediate streaming access to it. Well, then, should we tell people at the beginning of the pod which one was our favorite or should we wait till the end? I think my favorite is Iron Claw, but the more I think about Ferrari, I like thinking about Ferrari the most because okay. I think it's a really messy movie and a yeah. pretty rough screenplay for a variety of reasons. But I think there's more to that movie than all three of these films. Um, but I think Iron Claw is probably the most successful in what it's trying to do by design. Okay. I think Ferrari has a lot of technical flaws and is my favorite though. Okay. Wow. All right. Um, yeah. I think Iron Claw, like you said, is maybe the most complete movie, but mm-hmm. I feel the levers being pulled. And so it kind of like not loses pulled far points enough. for that. Yeah. yeah. Which is ironic considering the subject matter. Yeah. Which is and we'll talk about why too. Yeah. And then Maestro feels like it's, it has the most potential. 
to me. That's and the it, saddest that's part. That's why it's exactly. Especially because we rewatched The Star is Born, which we'll get into in a second. I was like, holy shit, Bradley Cooper's yeah, got it. Yeah, he has it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay. It's insane. So that's interesting. So uh, we both like Ferrari the most. Yeah. I, I think, thought you were going to say so. Iron Claw. Well, I think that is the best movie of the three, but I keep thinking, I want to rewatch it, Ferrari. That's the one I want to okay. revisit in theaters the most. And I might go watch it again, honestly, because I do think there is something there that I, I feel like I must have missed because I walked out of that being like kind of a mess, but I liked every second of it. Yeah. Um. So I, you know, feel complicated about it, but we'll get into it. We're starting off with yeah. Maestro. We'll get to Iron Claw, and then we'll end the podcast today with Ferrari. This should be a pretty long episode. We've never done three features in a single episode before, so we might, if this runs like two hours forty five or three hours, we might end up sending these in different episodes or yeah. splitting them up. So, listeners, if you see that on the feed, that'll be why. Yeah. Okay. Let's do Maestro. Ready? Okay. So Bradley Cooper is director and star of this biographical Leonard Bernstein drama. Let's yeah. call it melodrama. You know, what's interesting. I just looked at the cast and the Google genre it has it in is romance musical. Okay, sure. But yeah. I think it's more of a drama, a drama. Yeah. Uh, yes. And Bradley Cooper and Steven Spielberg had a interview together and, you know, Netflix has been really like putting out a bunch of interviews like with Guillermo del Toro I saw that. and a behind the scenes. Like, I think they're really pushing for this for award season as their, what their is prize that? runner. What is up with Spielberg and Scorsese kind of claiming Bradley Cooper? I think it's fascinating. They must've just really, you know, were, they felt touched by a star is born. Yeah. How successful that film. Uh, is. Me too. I mean, same. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so I and think, he's one of the great actors. So I understand that. I mean, too. Spielberg said to him, like, I cannot believe that this, a star is born was your first movie. And I can't believe this was your second movie. And obviously he's like being nice to him. He's like produced him, but I genuinely think he believes in him as a talent. Right. I believe in him as a talent, even though I didn't think Maestro fully worked. I believe in people who act like they have a vision at the very least. And he yeah. definitely demonstrates. Well, that. he got yeah. sat at the, the table at golden globes. Okay. We know that yeah. that was uh, like we said on the golden globes podcast to Hollywood uh, anointment of Bradley yes. Cooper. He was with Scorsese and yeah. Spielberg at yeah. the same table. So, but in that interview with Spielberg, he, which was kind of awkward. <laughs> was it? Um, yeah. I've seen a lot of awkward Bradley Cooper interviews. I saw one with Emma Stone recently that yeah. was kind of uncomfortable in moments. They seemed like they really loved each yeah, other. Yeah, they seemed like they were actually friends. She was really doing like, she's like a real star. And so she had all this leverage in the conversation. She knew when to like make something emotional versus funny versus serious. And he was like serious times three the yeah. whole time. Yeah. It's like, you know, I, I think the what he's doing in all the interviews. Cause I've, I've maybe watched like almost every interview with him and maestro. Mm -hmm. Uh, it just is a performative sincerity. At least it feels like, and he could definitely sure. be sincere about his, I mean, he spent years on this character, years on this set. Like he is in so many intricate conversations about each detail. Yeah. So like, I don't want to be like, someone's not sincere, but it is cringy, obviously. Right. Yeah. So he was having a conversation with uh, Spielberg and Spielberg asked him a question about, you know, did you have like trouble leaving this character, Leonard Bernstein? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, after you close the filming, he's like after ADR, of course, right? Like putting in voiceovers. Yeah. And Bradley Cooper just goes like, actually, there's no ADR. Yeah. <laughs> and actually... There's no voiceover. I hate that. And Spielberg got so red. Yeah. And then Bradley got so thing. red and yeah. it was so awkward. And um, because Spielberg was like, oh, okay. Like, yes. you know, 
Uh, anyway, he had a similar thing with Spike Lee, I think, too. Like Spike Lee said something to that effect, and he was yeah. like, "No, we don't do that on my set." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so cringy. Yeah, but anyway, uh, b- basically, how they framed the this um, conversation was that Maestro is a story about an anatomy of a marriage. Okay. That was how Bradley Cooper went into the story. Well, that's how they went into writing it, into directing it. And so that's what I kind of want to talk to you about today. Like, do you think it was successful in portraying an anatomy of a marriage movie? Well, it's kind of hard to take that seriously. When I saw a movie this year that did that better, maybe than any film I've seen in years called anatomy of a fall from (laughs) Justine Trier, which was like, honestly, one of the greatest anatomy of a marriage movies I've seen in so long. That's still my favorite film of the year. So I don't know about all that. Um, I guess, you know, like I think it really struggled to figure out how to deconstruct this flawed individual and artist while having the family of the Bernstein, the Bernstein family in on the script or apparently they didn't have to green light anything because the script had been moving hands to hands or it had been shifting between different studios. But I think Bradley wanted to bring in the family. And so that maybe created a little bit of a complicated, like uh, some kind of challenge for him in terms of like fully developing this flawed character he wanted to make. Yeah. Um, So I understand why he thinks like he wants to sell it as an anatomy of a marriage rather than a a great man deconstruction, because then that's, it seems like he has a personal relationship to the family and he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to do anything to harm that, which it makes sense to me. Yeah, that's something we'll talk about with Iron Claw too today. Yeah, because and Ferrari, the, honestly, the family. I'm. I don't know if they had green light. Uh, I guess privilege on I don't Iron know. of a Claw. Uh, Iron of a Claw. Um, Anatomy of a Fall. But yeah, I think that with Maestro and Iron Claw, both the families had like a part in this. Okay, in creating the story and. I always think like, can you create a realistic portrayal of someone if you're trying to like honor their children or honor their family? Like certainly you can be tasteful and like respectful and have a, you know, understand that someone is human. Right. And so we're looking at like the pressures that are impacting this person. You're not like judging the person. That's what this, that's what stories are for. Right. But there is also a difference in not, Uh, pulling punches right and i think that that's what maestro ultimately did um like until the last 10 minutes which i would argue are the best 10 minutes of the movie yeah yeah and so i think uh well let's not jump to the end oh yeah i don't want to yet but there is a conversation that we'll talk about between carrie mulligan and bradley cooper's character that just kind of like takes away any kind of tension yeah any kind of like interesting message yeah they spell everything out yeah Yeah. and and so i think like it it has the most potential like i said at the the beginning of the pod to really dive into the anatomy of a marriage versus some of the other movies yeah but because it really is focused on relationships the heavy dialogue movie but ultimately it just kind of like falls flat because it never knows which road it wants to like keep driving down. Well, this is a conversation really popular in the film Twitter sphere right now because of May, December and the real life man from that film coming out and saying that he wasn't really talked to about how to portray his family in that film. And he felt like it was, yeah. And he felt like it was disrespectful. And then the May, December fans like kind of turned on him, which was really interesting. Oh my God. Uh, And I mean, people can go back and listen to our May, December conversation. We thought it was complicated because tonally it wanted, it was a little bit, I mean, purposely messy uh, and it wanted to be a little bit contradictory in tone. So that's what I mean by messy. Just to, I guess, give myself some context there. So nobody hates on me, but just listen to the conversation. Yeah. But that movie is trying to be like, okay, Hollywood, 
it's an exploitation economy and they exploit uh, spectacle. And sometimes spectacle can have uh, at the cost of like human lives, basically. And he felt the real life man was like, this movie did exploit me. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the whole contradiction of the film that Todd Haynes was very aware of, which is why I think it's a very ambitious film. Um, So I think it's fascinating what you just said. I'm not sure you can do either one really well. You can't totally leave anybody out from the real life to pick. If people are alive from the story you're trying to tell Mm -hmm. and it's in that biography kind of genre, then you have to bring in some context to understand something fully, I think, in order to really tell the story you want to with your own themes. But yeah, it it makes sense that Spielberg was a producer on this because it went from Scorsese, right? Originally writing it, which would be maybe a little bit of a having a darker undertone in terms of human tension, right? When you enter into relationships and then Spielberg, like having more of a not light, lighter. Well, we, touch we on call it, it tragic optimism. Sometimes, empa- yeah. sometimes empathetic, sometimes sentimental. I know Jake Gyllenhaal and somebody else. I forget who the filmmaker was had rights to a separate script that was about Leonard Bernstein. Hmm. Um, and Jake Gyllenhaal is actually like a Jewish man that was going to portray Leonard Bernstein. So that probably would have been more about that specific lane, I would assume. Um, but Bradley Cooper kind of sways away from that. We'll get into that. I want to talk Cooper first and we okay. kind of already have been, but in the past five years, uh, he's given us now two portraits of deeply troubled figures. We have Jackson Maine from A Star is Born and now yeah. Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> yeah. If you don't die You're deep, deep. deep. <laughs> and you have you got fucking no legs. <laughs> God, it's so epic. Uh, you never had something to say. Oh, man. You got to dive deep it. in your fucking we soul. just cut all of that. Uh, no, <laughs> so let's keep it. Uh, so bad. So both these men that he has been playing in the past five years and his two feature films are both volatile and they are in pain for very different reasons. Yeah. But similarly, I think they are both dealing with their traumas through drugs, alcohol, sex. And for those like familiar with Bradley Cooper, that can't be surprising to you. Obviously Cooper has been public about coming out in the past few years about his own depression and drug addiction through Mm -hmm. his twenties. I think he was on the TV show alias through his twenties or his young twenties where he was going through this the most. He got help and became sober. um, I think around silver linings playbook. So almost 10 years ago now, Mm. and he's become now one of the most interesting actors working. And I think he's made two prestige films that obviously the best of the best in Hollywood really admire. Yeah. One that was not supposed to be a hit, but was surprisingly a blockbuster, which brought in a hefty $400 million, which was his debut with a star is born. And that had eight Oscar nominations. And it's probably one of our favorite movies of the 2010s. Yeah. I think people feel complicated about the film because it's a remake. Um, I don't really care. I think it's a flawed masterpiece and it's like a heavy, heavy movie and I understand people's criticisms of it, but I think it's a really special film. I would love to do it on Patreon sometime soon because I feel like this is good timing. And there are some messages that I think were like, uh, you know, but I think ultimately or pacing was tough in some areas of the the second half of the film. But ultimately I, I think I agree with you. Like I feel like it is a masterpiece. And now with Maestro, while it will likely get, one, two, maybe three Oscar nominations. I think it's financial and streaming numbers will be probably forever locked away at Netflix or <laughs> lied about. So its success yeah. will mostly be determined, I think, by the Academy in award season or word of mouth, which I don't think there will be much of because this is not an easy movie to sit with at home. I saw it in a theater, which was pretty great in the theater, even though yeah. I, I struggled with the film in I terms wish of the I had sound seen it mix. with you for the, that scene where he is conducting the orchestra for six minutes. Right. And I, that was 
specifically pretty wild in the theater but then i saw the real life leonard bernstein do the same thing i kind of gotten taken out of it once Mm. i saw how bradley cooper really just like copied like movement for movement the real life leonard bernstein doing that anyways at home when i watched it with you it definitely even got a little bit lower for me um because that's how most people are going to watch the film so i feel like that's how i should talk about it but before we get too deep into maestro i want to talk again more about cooper the performer the director uh and what you like about him because i think he brings a lively electric energy to both his performances and now his directing style which is very rare for actors turned directors who try to do something i guess off pitch like something a little bit different and his direction with the camera and pacing with the editing and and the way he uh, ties music to his film there is like a lyrical kind of I not to, not to be punny here, but musicality to his filmmaking. And you can really tell he's assembled a, a very specific crew to his sensibilities mm-hmm. and his characters that he writes or has co-screenwriters with are deeply cinematic because they are as equally inspirational as they are broken, which I think obviously we can, you know, from our relationship to him in pop culture, we can assume that it is probably something Cooper relates to himself. Yeah. Um, so what have you liked in seeing him go from performance to now acting? Do you find that that's what you come back to his movies for is like that electric vibe? Yeah. I mean, I think that he is an amazing actor, you know, and it is really impressive to see someone also, you know, star in a movie and direct it and, and be in control of all aspects because even though there are moments of the the movie that didn't work, I thought his performance as letter Leonard uh, Bernstein was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, but I mean, I do feel that Cooper <laughs> behind any character, but I don't mind. Right. Like I yeah. feel Cooper and Jackson Maine. I don't care. Um, Even in nightmare alley. I think he's phenomenal in that film. Yeah. A, a really underrated movie of a year or two ago. Um, but you can still feel Cooper in it in moments until the very final scene where I was like, that's somebody else. He's doing some DDL here. Yeah. I don't remember the last part of Nightmare Alley. Oh, it's great. But I, I remember loving the movie. That. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I think like, I, so I love him as a performer and I love his direction, directional style. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. he is a really great artist and I can't wait to follow the rest of his filmography, even though I don't think this was maybe hit the highs of my expectations going into it. Yeah. But yeah, there are a few things with this movie just off the bat um, in terms of choices he made, though, that I struggled with. And I'm sure you probably struggled with in terms of seeing it in a theater Yeah, where I watched it without subtitles and like I need subtitles. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, to understand most movies. But for this one in particular, because there was no voiceover, I yeah. guess. Right. He said that maybe he said maybe there were like one or two for Carrie, uh, but it was almost impossible to understand what they were saying with no subtitles. Yes. Okay. I will say even in a theater when Bradley Cooper and Carrie Mulligan are speaking to each other for the very first time when yeah, it's in black and white behind say. When the they're, door, they're in the party at the party. Yeah. yeah. I turned to James who I saw, you know, this movie with, and I was like, I don't know what they're saying. Like yeah. I can't tell even in a theater with the sound design. So I, I think the sound mix was a little weird. Um, I think purposely in moments, but then sometimes I don't know. I think a lot of, audiences and critics who love certain directors who are very popular in pop culture can sometimes be very forgiving in moments like this and then create some kind of meta reading mm. which we're definitely going to talk about when we get to ferrari with michael mann and that movie kind of being technically a mess in moments and how intentional yeah. 
his non-conventional style is versus yeah, it being know. messy. Uh, I think that's people just trying to defend him. And we yeah. love Michael Mann's movies, yeah. and we're going to talk about that. But yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I had very similar problems. Um, but I was still like kind of, I was pulled in by the story because I didn't really know anything about Leonard Bernstein before this film. And I don't have a relationship to classical music. Mm-hmm. And it seems Hollywood really, really does. Like yeah. Spielberg, Scorsese, and it, like wanting this script that tells me that obviously like there is a coastal culture that is very much invested in classical music. Yeah. And that's just, I mean, we now live in Colorado. We lived outside, we lived in Northern Virginia before Colorado, but we weren't really connected to like the, you know, the New York crowd, the LA crowd at all ever in our lives. And so I would assume that there's just a huge relationship people have in Hollywood media to classical music and composers at large, but I did not know Leonard Bernstein was this 20th century cultural force that inspired new listeners of this type of music. Right. I, I just wasn't familiar with anything he composed. Like I know, I now know after watching the movie and doing research myself, because the film, I, I think I like this part of it. It doesn't actually tell you the Wikipedia page of him, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Instead, it kind of does inspire you to want to go and look a little bit. Okay. Who is this guy? Why was he such a talented artist? And I did learn more about the ballets he wrote for or the operas or Broadway's that he performed for. I didn't realize he had even done scores on uh, on the waterfront or West Side Story. So that mm-hmm. was all news to me. Um, so I enjoy, you know, learning about how he made classical music feel entertaining for a new generation. That was cool. Yeah, that was cool to learn in my research after the film as well, like looking at Leonard Bernstein's young people's concerts and how he was like a major figure in classical music. Mm -hmm. And I wish that the documentaries that I didn't get to watch like all of them, but there were some interesting parts of his life and Felicia Montenegro's life. Mm -hmm. Or am I saying that correctly? I think so. Apologize if I'm not. Yeah. I think actually I heard him say Montalegre. Okay. Instead of Montalegra. Okay. So Felicia Montalegre. That's what I heard him say in an interview. So we can go with that. But I think that there were interesting parts of the documentary for his life and for her life that were not included in the movie that I wish were because Mm -hmm. I went into the movie not really knowing a lot about Leonard Bernstein and leaving the movie still not really knowing a lot about Leonard Bernstein. It felt like I knew a little bit more about a movie Bradley Cooper wanted to make. Yeah, (laughs) that might be the film fans of us. I'd be curious to for listeners who weren't familiar with Bradley Cooper's work. If there is a listener out there, you know, maybe you didn't watch The Hangover. You didn't watch American Sniper or you didn't watch, um, I don't know, one of his most recent like Licorice Pizza. And maybe you weren't that familiar (laughs) with A Star is Born. Um, Let us know. Do you feel like you watched a bad movie? Because I'm curious because the only reason I sort of still like this film is because it's a Bradley Cooper project. Yeah, maybe that's it too. Yeah. Because I think that it has a lot of very interesting uh, foundations of the story, right? In terms of even if he wanted to do an an anatomy of a marriage and enter into the story Mm -hmm. through that lens. Like there are a lot of very interesting pieces of Felicia Montalegre's character of mm-hmm. Leonard Bernstein's character or actual real life people, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel like they're fully explored. Okay. Let's talk about the story because I think it starts with, I think you're right. And I think one of the reasons is because the film has a nonlinear structure and it's going through multiple decades of history between yeah. the two characters and all the other characters in their lives too. I want to start first with the opening title card, which is a great quote. Um, It says, a work of art does not answer questions. It provokes them, which Mm -hmm. honestly should be our description of this podcast. Um, (laughs) 
But while I co-sign that, I don't think that opening title card deserves to be in this film. No, yeah, I don't. Think I was so, so excited when I Me saw too. it. Me too. I was yeah. like, "Let's go," yeah. you know, because <laughs> I love we. I mean, we both love movies that allow us to experience something that feels true to life, which yeah. are contradictions or are the messiness of relationships. Mm-hmm. And I didn't. I felt like there were really strong hands on this story. Like oh, I yeah. didn't feel like it was. It was a lingering idea of like. I feel like it was literally doing the opposite of that quote. It was answering questions. Yeah. That the audience I don't think it was had about someone's personal life. It, like, yeah. it, it literally tied knots, or sorry, not tied knots, tied bows yeah. at the end of the story where I was expecting, especially from that quote for there to be some room for the audience to kind of like linger or sit on an idea. Right. I think actually Oppenheimer does a, a much better job in deconstructing its great man myth. And yeah. we were pretty critical of that film on our podcast, mm-hmm. even though we thought it was very good. And it is a top 20, top 15 movie of the year for me. Um, I don't I don't think this movie really comes that all that close. But I wanted to start off with that quote just because I was like so in when yeah. I saw that. Um, so yeah, the film has a nonlinear structure. It begins with a very old Leonard Bernstein with some of the best makeup I've seen all year. Yes. Uh, albeit the unnecessary prosthetic choice. It's still some of the best makeup. I even when yeah. he's like sweating at the end. When I, he was older, I, was I believed it was an older Bradley Cooper. Like it, he, yeah. whatever they have technology wise, uh, I, you know, they're maybe doing sure. the 3D printing. It looked like real skin. I think they are. <laughs> I think they were. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he's shown speaking to a news crew at the beginning of the film, and he's detailing the impact his wife Felicia left on him and that he still sees her ghost. And then we cut to a young Leonard Bernstein who gets a call to step in for a sick conductor to lead the New York Philharmonic, which was like the beginning. Right, exactly. And it's in black and white. And apparently this is going to be his conducting debut is what I pulled from it. Uh, And you get this overjoyed performance from Cooper that, you know, we know so well, we're so familiar with it. He's seen getting out of a bed with a man who was like subtly in bed with him. And they, and it was really clear on second watch, but on the first watch, you're kind of like, was that a man? And then Bernstein spritz out of his apartment into this fantastical montage sequence of him as this like up and coming American artistic genius. And we find out that the man he was with was his partner, David, who is played by the very, very talented Matt Bomer, who doesn't get the screen time I was hoping for in this yeah, film. I thought he so was so good, good in this, yeah. like the two scenes he was in. And he was kind of used in like an Emily Blunt situation in mm-hmm. Oppenheimer, um, just kind of in the periphery for the first act. And and he comes back in the second act, but not in a very kind of fulfilling character way. Well, yeah, even the so the one moment is when he's looking at Felicia when Bradley Cooper introduces her to oh, him yes. at the stage. Right. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of a, a shock, right? Like we yeah. learned that they are together and he says, I want to like introduce you to this girl mm-hmm. or woman. I forget what he says, but who I've been uh, talking to and I wrote you about her, but you know, Matt, the Matt Balmer character is David. The character's name is obviously in like in shock and really hurt and doing a really good job conveying that of like, Oh no, everything's fine because you can sense the power dynamic with Leonard and David there in terms of, maybe having to keep their relationship secret from Felicia because they don't even know if they could trust Felicia who Leonard is maybe is falling in love with. Right. And then also obviously like the hurt of him not communicating with him. Like we don't know if they uh, have talked about having an open relationship. It seems like they kind of have an understanding of maybe needing to, to hide their identity um, for their safety. Yeah. But I think that 
Yeah. Like that was a really heartbreaking scene. And then the second scene too, when uh, Bradley Cooper walks out and like, then David is married, mm-hmm. right? He says like, I slept with both your parents to the baby, which I thought was a great like line. A and, great line. Yeah, except I was like, Bradley let's get Cooper more of this. Does this like a laugh right after he says oh, it? Oh yeah. That was so <laughs> like from licorice pizza or something. So Bradley Cooper. It, what, yeah. It was really, really like intense and it just felt so jarring. Considering what we knew of that character yeah, of yeah. this film. It came out of nowhere. I did love the scene. I was like, wherever, whatever this energy is, whatever yeah. volatile move this was from him and his performance, I wish that was the majority of this film. Yeah. So those two scenes were pretty heartbreaking. Yeah. But I, I think that what makes that scene in particular heartbreaking and what I wish was a part of the story that the writers decided to go more into was the scene that uh, David and Leonard are walking away to take the subway together Yes, and have a moment where, you know, they both have women in their lives, even though they're gay. Although uh, Bradley Cooper described Leonard Bernstein as um, his sexuality as fluid. Yeah. So like he could certainly be, it's up uh, for interpretation yeah. because the family hasn't been clear on it either. But ultimately like we know to. that he loves David right. and they can't be together And so there's like a double kind of compounding of this tragic moment Mm -hmm. and that they want to be together. And and Matt Bomber does such a great job, like really uh, showing because he doesn't really have have a lot of dialogue, but showing his love for Leonard's character Mm -hmm. and like kissing him on the forehead and just his reaction and how he's kind of consoling him in that moment. Yeah. And then Bradley Cooper does a great job there, too, when he's talking about like how everyone is perceiving him. Yes. And how his image oh, yeah. to succeed, uh, which we get later on, even in terms of his identity mm-hmm. um, and and how people should saying that he should change his name. But here, like he is talking about how people perceive him and his sexuality and how that could impact his career and what he like loves to do. Yeah. So there's a lot of great impressionistic filmmaking in terms of what we're seeing by characters and their physical performances, what is not being said. I think that really works. I just wish, like how you're saying, we could have got more of David. It just seems like there were five minutes of his character that were missing from the film. Yeah. Which is odd because it's a Netflix-funded film, so you think that they would have a huge budget to make this longer if they wanted to. Um, But as we move on from David in this part of Leonard Bernstein's history and he becomes more famous, he meets some interesting people, specifically Felicia, who we get to, uh, you know, he already met her at this point, but we get to know her a little bit better. Um, who in real life I discovered after the film was actually Felicia was an East European Jewish, also Costa Rican Chilean artist, uh, which makes the casting of Carrie Mulligan also complicated because I, I was pretty surprised leaving the theater learning that because if you look at, if you look at Mulligan next to a picture of Felicia, which I did online, they looked very similar, Mm -hmm. but I imagine there are thousands of half European, half Latina, Hispanic actors who are capable of a role like this. So even though Mulligan is probably the best part of this movie, if not of all three films that we're talking about today, I mean, she's really good in this film. Um, That's mostly due to the character, I think, because the character is pretty tragic and very complex and very artistic and interesting. So I'm sure there were many women with an appropriate ethnicity who would have been easy for Cooper to cast. I only bring that up because he's gotten some complicated criticism about him not being Jewish playing a Jewish man, also the prosthetic Mm -hmm. nose. And I've not seen a lot of criticism about Carrie Mulligan's character, which is fascinating. Maybe because her performance is so good. Yeah, I think, you know, like you said, Carrie Mulligan might have one of the best performances of any of the movies we talk about today. Yeah. But 
ultimately you're right. Like Felicia Montalegre is such an interesting character and there are so many other actors who could bring this part to life. Yeah. All that to say, Carrie Mulligan having a very interesting year. Yeah. Killing it in Saltburn. Yeah. Doing a phenomenal <laughs> job, like kind of Oscar worthy performance in Maestro. So she's fantastic. But yes. Bernstein, Bernstein and his relationship to Felicia goes from this interesting romance to then this fraught decades long journey that began in like the forties until her death in the late seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where I'll tell everyone, if you don't want anything majorly spoiled for you, go watch the movie on Netflix because there are going to be some major spoilers to the end of this conversation. Uh, so the film is positioned as this anatomy of a marriage, as you put it earlier, I guess mm-hmm. as Bradley Cooper puts yeah. <laughs> it. Um, but I do think, and we've been very clear on this point, I think, but just to reiterate it, the movie struggles to balance its exploration of Bernstein's musical artistry and his identity that is also socially suppressed and the multiple relationships that he tries to have in his life, which then lead to his fall into drugs and alcohol to then his complicated relationship with Felicia yeah, and all the pressure that comes with all of those different parts of his life. And it's just like a lot of story to balance and a lot of eras of time to balance in only like two hours. And somehow to me, Maestro, and this is kind of a cliche, but it does feel like this. It feels too long and it also feels too short. Yeah. And that's because of the pacing. I think it, it never really investigates one of those story beats long enough to feel fully successful. And its script is not strong enough to support its subversive choice to make this movie more about Felicia, which is surprising because Josh, Singer was hired as a co-writer to help Cooper on this, mm-hmm. um, which was very similar to how Damien Chazelle's first man script was treated because right. that's what Singer came on to work on. And then also Spotlight, I believe. Uh, so For I'm sure both great scripts. First I'm man phenomenal, and Spotlight. especially first man. Uh, yeah, honestly, especially. Yeah, though, you're right. Those are both two of the best scripts of that decade. Uh, so, yes, Maestro is sometimes slowly paced, sometimes fast paced. And it is ultimately this chronicle of a great artist turned into a chronicle of sort of two artists with the tension of one overshadowing the other. And then you have babies that come out of nowhere. You have this family uh, and then you have this complicated romance and friendship and family Mm -hmm. building. That's all overwhelming because years pass so quickly in the film that you would think would feel subtle or suggestive, but not as much as you want it to. Yeah. And then Bernstein becomes this star toward the third act and he goes through relationships with other partners that you see in the periphery that then is made explicit, which seems like he's in an open relationship that he's very honest about with Felicia. And then it seems like up until the point she's not okay with it or feels like she's lonely and doesn't have a partner because she's been forced into a, like a housewife role. Right. And she wants to pursue her own art. And if you blink throughout the two hours, honestly, it feels like you'll miss something really important to the multiple narratives going on. Yeah. So it's a really, it feels a little messy by the end of it. Yeah. And I think a part of that is what you were saying. Like it does feel both too long and too short Mm -hmm. in different moments with the pacing, because there are moments where it feels too short, where you want more, right. That is not given to you. And it's not in a sense where it's like, Oh, I wish we like got to see more, but it was cool how we were meditating and like lingering yeah. on this. Like, no, like it was just like <laughs> straight up, like you're giving us a snippet of something yeah. that doesn't feel fully explored, even thematically uh, in, in the movie. Like, for example, something that I would have loved to see more was what Leonard was talking about in his interview with the guy who's writing a book about him when he was in the backyard and the pool. Oh, yes. Yeah. And he was talking about, you know, how, uh, basically Felicia is 
upset with life and doesn't really have the music sing in her. Yeah. Even though he doesn't say that explicitly, but how he also is like nihilistic uh, about life. And Mm -hmm. he feels like as an artist, while the interviewer just read a whole list of accomplishments that he has done in his life, he was like, that's actually something I am deeply unsettled about and Mm -hmm. like upset about. It doesn't seem like a lot that I've done. Okay. It's something that, that kind of like eats at him right? in terms of success. But I would like to know more about his view of the world or see, like, I don't need him to say it, yeah. but to see more so like what was being explored in the beginning of the movie with his relationship with David, like the idea that he is, his identity is not accepted by the very people who are upholding his music. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think that is an example of I wanted more of of that storyline because it felt like the movie was trying to, to do that. And then there are other moments too with his relationship with Felicia, where I feel this as well. Like I want this to be more explored and the one, a good example of that, even though we'll talk about one at the end, a good example of that, like halfway through the film is when he is trying to finish I, I guess like a piece, piece of music, music yeah. right? That he has exactly been working on for about. a while and he can't seem to get done. Yeah. And he uh, comes to their like country home mm-hmm. and all the kids are there. Felicia's there. Mm-hmm. And she was not expecting him to bring someone that he's been seeing. Right. And so we get the understanding that they have an open relationship, yeah. right? In many different scenes. But I think the tension here is that Uh, Leonard is not necessarily communicating with Felicia about his relationships. Mm -hmm. And so, and there are moments like when they're even talking to, he's like, well, are you mad that I brought, you know, him? Like, I think his name's Thomas. Okay. Yeah. You know, are you mad that I I brought uh, like Thomas and, and she's like, no. Um, But you could tell like, she just is upset that he's not talking to her about things. Like Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like they have a, an understanding with each other or like, you know, so yeah. I think that's like the more interesting tension there and what the film is also trying to explore. But when Bradley Cooper's uh, character, when Leonard goes away to like the house to write his piece of music and it, it, it's framed as if he's there for at least like a day yeah. or two days, he's like locked himself away in this creative pursuit to finish yeah. this script. And he needs his like what we understand is as his muse there as like Tommy. Right. And I think um, that's the music he delivers in the cathedral later on. I oh, believe, is that? Okay. I think I'm not sure. Yeah. And so he, he like, uh, comes into the house where, uh, and Felicia, the kids and Thomas are like all sitting there mm-hmm. and he says, I'm done and, and throws up the music and Felicia's character runs away like into the pool and just like cannonballs into the pool and sits at the bottom. Right. And I think like that moment, I understood what was happening. Right. She, especially the second time you're like, okay, well she feels like so unsatisfied with her life. Yeah. And she knows that like, it's supposed to be kind of like giving us an example of what she confronts him about at Thanksgiving of like being self-involved, like not thinking about how his, his actions are not or how his actions are impacting her and the family just by like not having open communication. Right. His love and, for people is a defense mechanism. Yeah. Or yeah. like him. Yeah. So, so I think that is interesting, but I didn't feel like I understood that like logically, but I didn't Same. feel it. Yeah. I didn't feel I was like, that, Oh, here's a catharsis, a yeah. relief that we're supposed to be feeling right now. When I was like seeing the, the design pool. of the script yeah. more than I was actually feeling. It wasn't a deserved moment. Yeah. I um, was like, she was, it, it, 
cut to her at the bottom of the pool. Cool shot. And I was like, oh, okay, she's upset. That's all I thought. Like I thought, <laughs> okay, like oh yeah, that's sad. Yeah, yeah. and but it it could. I don't I don't know. Like I think that there yeah. could have been some layered um, storytelling in so, terms of working us up to that point. This is where I think biopics traditionally struggle, right? And this is why I admire Bradley Cooper's shot with Maestro because I think he's trying to subvert biopic expectations by making a film that captures the propelling life and feeling internal feelings of Leonard Bernstein that sometimes were never, you know, externalized Mm -hmm. and how the people around him and who are affected, um, the most could be, uh, maybe destroyed by his gravitational pull. And rather than the plot beats of Bernstein's life being, um, really kind of like, hammered on and like overdone and just been kind of like this annoying traditional biopic cooper tries to film this as if he's making phantom thread as if everything is suggestive yeah and i really think he struggles with that i think he's very good at loud filmmaking and i think he's uh like in moments in a star is born when characters are like spelling out their feelings to each other Mm -hmm. he does that in a way through the editing that is seamless but when there's these moments that are supposed to be layered in their subtleties i don't know if he if he's got that right yeah, now. yeah well that's because they're the kind of threads he's trying to connect are are not connected like yeah and i think that's like part of the screenplay like an issue there but also just yeah i mean cooper also had like a a hand in writing this as well but yeah. I, I just think that there was something off in terms of like pick pick something that you want to really focus on yeah. and then have these other things be uh side themes yeah. and have those be the interesting questions where it felt like the whole movie were like subplots. Yes. Yeah. And so that was confusing. And then also like, I think that there were interesting moments that could have been more explored. Like what we were talking about earlier, if it didn't feel like it needed to be signed off by the children. Although I, you know, we have no idea what, what they uh, particularly like wanted included sure. or not, but there are certainly power dynamics with him having relationships with his students um, at the very end of the film that it yeah. felt like the movie was definitely exploring in that last like two minutes there. And I'm sure Bradley Cooper watched tar and went fuck like, yeah. <laughs> because the tar basically is a two and a half hour version of the last 10 minutes of this yeah. film, you yeah. know, and the best part, I think the best part of Meister truly is the last 10 minutes, which is sad. So ultimately I was left feeling conflicted because I think the movie does a good job trying to contextualize uh, Leonard Bernstein as being a performative person because of society's pressure, um, but also being performative in in his family when it's convenient for him and like how that harms Felicia. But ultimately, again, I feel like the movie is sanitized until those like last 10 minutes, Um, though there are some moments that I think the movie doesn't feel like it's sanitized. Like there's a there are a few moments with Felicia speaking to um, Leonard where specifically at Thanksgiving, um, there is a conversation where Felicia is telling Leonard that he is lying to himself, that he loves people, and that really his bigger-than-life personality is in actuality a defense mechanism, and that his tragic artist uh, trope that he is kind of playing into of somebody who must act overburdened with greatness and therefore be self-destructive through drugs and alcohol is a choice on his end, not this predetermined fate for him, even though we understand the context about society's pressures too. Mm-hmm. there. Um, ultimately she's telling him that he is secretly hateful. I think she actually says that. And the fight ends with this Snoopy joke 
in the background that makes right. the whole scene fall flat for me. And I think Cooper made this scene to get audiences to go, wow, the cathedral scene was sick when you see Leonard Bernstein as, you know, Bradley Cooper as Leonard Bernstein performing, you know, leading this great orchestra. But ultimately the the subtextual scene was this this fight between Felicia yeah. and Leonard on Thanksgiving. It just really didn't end up working for me. Maybe it was because of the joke. I don't know. Yeah, well... Let's talk about the joke first and then I want to talk about that scene. But yeah, I didn't even get the joke. Like I watched it once. Um, the second time I watched it, I watched it with subtitles and that helped a lot. So like that scene worked a lot more for me. Okay. But yeah. the Snoopy joke, like I watched it twice and then you told me about how people think that's funny. And I well, just didn't even, it didn't register. I feel really like left out of the com- <laughs> the humor in this movie. Like uh, film Twitter reviews that I've read, podcasts I've listened to about this film everyone really finds the Snoopy thing funny. And I feel like I'm just missing something culturally where I like, first of all, I don't know what a vestibule is. I, I, didn't had, I had to Google yeah. it. Like I, I thought that was like a different language when I saw it in the theater, I couldn't tell what he had just said. And in that moment, I kind of realized, okay, this movie really is for a middle upper class kind of uh, audience because yeah. I mean, that's how I imagine people who can afford to even go to orchestras or watch classical music. That is a very middle class, upper class hobby um not the people who are actually performing the music uh, like obviously a lot of musicians are leave, living paycheck mm-hmm. to paycheck but this moment of like people loving maestro and then also knowing a, knowing what a vestibule is i started connecting the dots between why i felt distance from the classical music and also distance from the kind of wealthy lifestyle of this family and when i again when i looked up what a vestibule was i realized it was like a great lobby uh, yeah. coming from the the door of a home into the yeah. I guess the living room I don't know and so I think that's just a really good example of maybe why we felt like into the interpersonal dynamics of these people's lives but ultimately out on what it was trying to say about classical music the art form and then also the rich lifestyle of the family too yeah I think that's interesting I I also like genuinely like I think that's definitely a part of it of me not being in on the joke because I didn't know what a vestibule was either but I also didn't understand that as a connection to Snoopy outside of the window. I just, I, yeah, we might sound stupid right now. Maybe maybe. somebody gets it. I literally Googled what does the Snoopy joke mean in Maestro? And somebody wrote a whole article about how it was just funny that they were having this fight and then, Snoopy and then showed up. I just, I'm not even. I'm not trying to like be. Uh, that's what family life is judgy like? towards like people's sense of humor. I just genuinely like don't even like understand that it's a joke. Does that mean like? Yeah. I'm just like okay, Snoopy. Well, there's moments like that where by. he walks into the Thanksgiving dinner with a doll Snoopy. And then you see the big Snoopy, and then there's the later moment where my an older maestro driving his car, and then the music he's playing out loud says maestro in the song. Or says Leonard, Leonard Bernstein yeah. in the song, and you see that on his license plate. License plate, yeah. And I was like, those two moments, if they hit for people, that's why it I just felt like on the nose. Yeah, I understand why people like the movie if that worked for you. Honestly, that those are the two scenes. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I think well, that was really one of the only jokes in the movie that was like a written joke. Right. Uh, so, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe someone could tell us what we're missing. But I think that scene at Thanksgiving was obviously very crucial to the story, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is where Felicia and Lenny are having it out and we get an insight into what Felicia has been feeling and Mm -hmm. what's been like bubbling up. And also it gives us, it's kind of like the climax of the story. Yeah. Right. And so what is really important about this scene is I think it's the, I think it's the best scene. And then it leads though to a scene that, makes the story 
really fall flat. Agreed. I was so, going to say the same thing. Because she's talking yeah. about how he's a tortured artist and how he is, you know, turning to unhealthy avenues of drugs and alcohol to deal with that mm-hmm. and how that's impacting her with like lack of communication and now impacting the family. And we see the eldest daughter played by Maya Hawk, who uh, tough. tough performance. Yeah. Um, but she it narratively is understanding uh, since he came a day late to Thanksgiving and yes. kind of like freaking out in terms of like, wait, is this family that I thought was stable and everything was like kind of glued together or are things like messier. And that's mm-hmm. a, a relatable storyline to like a lot of families, obviously, right? Like as you grow up and like start to see your parents as full human beings. Yeah. As flawed people. Um, yeah. So I think that was interesting, but here's what happened that didn't totally work. Like, so she says that you have hate in your heart, mm-hmm. right? And what she means by that is that like, you're doing a, a lot of these things in terms of like your career and um, maybe even ego. Yeah. Yeah. That are impacting me that in terms of like a lack of communication with me and it basically like <laughs> I'm thinking of Phantom Thread now because you said it, but like well, Phantom Thread like, is a great, a great my man feelings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, um, but yeah, but basically she's saying like y- you're hurting me yeah. and like you're, I think you're knowingly doing it yes. right because they have that conversation where he's kind of in a way like gaslighting and saying, uh, you know, well, isn't it okay that Tommy's around? Yeah. And, and she's like, no, it's fine. Yeah. But I think, we can tell there in the unsaid that she like wanted a heads up. Yes. Right. Um, and, and so I think like the lack of communication is like the big kind of theme there. And I think Bradley Cooper does say in one of his interviews, not to derail you, sorry, but I think he does say in one of his interviews that he thinks Leonard Bernstein was most artistic or most happy with his art. Um, ironically, once Felicia was not in his life anymore, like mm. he could be himself. I think oh, he, yeah, said he said something he's to that more effect. free after yes. she died. And so I yeah. think he believes in what I think Cooper believes in what Felicia is saying to Bernstein in this moment, based on what I've heard from Cooper in interviews. Yeah. And even I think, though he goes back on it with a future scene you're going to get to. Yeah. So, but I think you're right in terms of like this, this scene also that does give us context in terms of what else could be impacting uh, Lenny's character. Right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and how society doesn't accept him and he feels like he has to keep this piece of him a, a secret. Also, we didn't talk about this, but earlier, right. We, he goes to a dinner where someone who is powerful is saying like, you know, they're not going to hire a Jewish conductor. You should yes. probably change your name. So there's a lot of different things that we get context before this conversation mm-hmm. where we know that Felicia might also have that context and, and you know, not, she's not like saying like you're a a spiteful person or anything like that. She's saying like, we are not seeing each other right now. That's what I read from that. scene. I I agree. So I, I thought that was interesting. And then when we get though, to the final scene where that line is brought back, where she says, you know, there is no hate in your heart. We're back at it's after the six minute cathedral scene. And Bradley Cooper does the whole like reenactment of that cathedral, um, conducting. Yes which is impressive and it was a beautiful scene. Yeah. But I think for me, it, it fell really flat and I was like, Oh, like I don't think this movie completely knows what it is. Yeah. yeah. Like, because it did feel like, okay, this is interesting. This feels like uh, a story about flawed people, like real people. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, behind the scenes of a really important uh, American figure in terms of classical music. Yeah. But then when we get to that scene, it's confusing because Bradley Cooper says that Carrie Mulligan is the main character of the movie in his interviews. And the scene that we get right before her telling him, okay, you have no hate in your heart 
is not her, you know, or not the audience understanding, okay, maybe here's all this context about what he is grappling with yeah. like in his life yeah. that is, he doesn't really have like avenues that he could even talk to someone about besides her. Right. right? Um, and so I, I think like that was not, that was not given to us in terms of like context for her to have the realization that he has no hate in his heart. Right. Instead what happened is she had lunch or dinner or whatever with Sarah Silverman, who is Bradley Cooper's sister in the movie. Mm-hmm. And Carrie Mulligan says to Sarah Silverman, like I was foolish to think that I could survive on what Lenny had to give me. And, yeah. and she said like, really like who's not being realistic and that scene, while it could be framed and it, a charitable reading would be like, oh, well, she's in this really like kind of tragic situation where her and her partner are not communicating and she feels kind of isolated. Mm-hmm. And like you said before, has been she's an artist herself. She's an actor and yeah. she's been put in a place where she has to like take care of the a home, huge family, right? Yeah. Like they have the interview earlier too, where she's like, well, I don't really have much time like beyond keeping this house and keeping track of Lenny's schedule. Right. So that, that part, um, is not like realized there, uh, in terms of like her self, like not lying to herself, but essentially, right. Like yeah. of being like, I was foolish to think that I just wanted clear communication from, from the person who I'm in a relationship with. Yeah. It seemed like instead that it was actually saying that she was foolish for thinking that she could expect clear communication from Lenny. It was yeah. a very confusing scene for me. It I, sounds like something that Bradley Cooper hasn't fully resolved, like in his own opinions on the real life person, Leonard Bernstein and his life. Well, yeah, because then when she says, you know, you have no hate in your heart to him later on, mm-hmm. it reads as her saying, oh, I was... I was silly for wanting clear communication from you. You have no hate in your heart. Never mind. Yeah. It that's how it reads to me at least. And I thought it was like, oh, this is really interesting because Felicia felt like a like an interestingly developing character mm-hmm. and now feels like she's here to serve the story of uplifting Lenny as this important classical music figure. And crucially, I think the movie knows this because it immediately goes into her forgiving him basically and then goes to her having cancer. Yeah. And on first watch, I was crying a lot because the scene is really well performed, really well blocked when the doctor tells uh, Felicia that she has cancer and Leonard Bernstein uh, and Bradley Cooper's performance in this scene is probably his best of the movie. Um, and the way he reacts as like a supportive figure mm-hmm. is really, really, I think essential to this movie even being good and like realizing it is good because it is good. Um, but on second watch, I was like, wow, this is a really strategic placement. Even if this is how it happened in the history of their life mm-hmm. together, a really strategic placement of her getting cancer because yeah. it comes right after the major contradiction of the film, which is the underdeveloped woman behind the great man, which yeah. is Felicia and telling like basically forgiving him for yeah. uh, what, what to the audience feels like being entrapped to this situation where she cannot actually be a creative person. And she is left to be a housewife and what she does not necessarily want to do. Right. Well, so, would have made way more sense or sorry. Well, I, I was just going to say, so if you take out that scene of her forgiving him or saying that you have no hate in your heart and then you cut to the cancer, then I think it becomes something else. But because we have that moment where she says you have no hate in your heart after this great 
well massively crafted edited sequence of him with this huge orchestra the audience is odd and they're also now okay oh yeah we forgive him because that's how we've been trained to watch great man biopics and now she has cancer wow now i care about her character again obviously this film cares about her character again and maybe she was the main character the whole time and so it ended on her yeah Yeah. exactly so it's very (laughs) very strategic in its design yeah i think that's right I, i think that placement makes a lot of sense in terms of moving the story along and and being uh that i think that's why the movie doesn't work right for me ultimately and why i'm a little sad because i feel like it has so much potential is when it switches right there to being too um like it's not even like forgiving um but it's not now as nuanced or like real in terms of uh us viewing uh it becomes a story about people. it becomes conventional in a movie that's exactly. acting non-conventional. Yeah, what would have made more sense too is like her having maybe realizations of like okay, uh, like we said before, here are all the different societal pressures on you know my partner, mm-hmm. and like while he can't give me what I need, and he's like not communicating with me, like I can still tell him that there's no hate in his heart, but I can still like have you know, expectations of being treated as an equal. And so like that was not explored and that would have been fine because then the no, you have no hate in your heart would have been fine for me, but because it was framed as like her not realizing or her not, um, thinking that she like was expecting too much, which was literally just expecting like communication. Right. Uh, then it's not even, it's just not even a good, Story. Like when she said that, I was like, what? Yeah. I, no, wasn't, I, mean, I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this goes back to my biggest problem with the movie is that it acts as if it's being suggestive and subtle. Um, and then it, and it is in certain moments, it operates like a quiet drama between Bernstein's sexuality, his, his drug use, and then Felicia also with problems with his bigger than life personality and how he sucks everyone into his orbit and then her problems with being used as a housewife to give Bernstein a family and, a, and children uh, while he has other relationships that he's not communicative about. And the movie is also in moments, just like you're saying, not subtle about any of that when it becomes very loud and explicit about the nuances of the film and the relationships. And it has so many moments that are quiet and careful and scenes where characters are just staring at each other from afar or two characters are talking to each other by a pool and, and your camera shot is 50 feet you know, from them and you have trees mm-hmm. blocking your sight and the sound design's all, all mixed in a weird way. And I, I think this movie feels it's being very subtle and I think it would be very generous or charitable, like you said earlier, to say that it is. I actually think by the end of the film, even though the performances are great in the third act with the, the cancer sequences, it's so explicit about what it actually thinks about itself. Yeah. And I think the nuance is lost and I wanted it to be a lot more cutting and a lot more angry. And I just think it, they didn't necessarily need to tell us. Um, I, I just, they didn't need to tell us that Felicia was, I don't know the right word. I'm just going to keep saying forgiving of him. Yeah. Cause I think it makes it a lot more complicated. Well, they just take that scene out. Leave forgiving is yes. the issue. Yeah. Yeah. And I do briefly want to talk about the portion of the movie where she does get sick and, and passes away from cancer, because I think that's an interesting take that it like comes right after this. So it's, propelling us into this really emotional part of their lives. Yeah. Universally tragic. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think like while that is a successful part of the movie and the way that he's framing it and showing her get getting sicker and the family kind of coming back together, Mm -hmm. 
and his reaction to it. It just feels like, again, the narrative points in this movie are kind of choppy. And so like, yes, it is universally sad. And yes, I cried because I, you know, I, that's sad objectively, but also mm-hmm. like, I think of like you, you know, and, sure. and so I think yeah. like that is obviously an emotional part. I also think, you know, especially for anyone who's been in a situation where you're in a doctor's office and you're in this like sterile environment where someone who you care about or yourself is like receiving this really intense information uh, about their health. Like that is, is really effective because it's something that people relate to. And it's obviously just like devastating. Right. Right. But I think that to your point earlier in terms of this being the portion that we move into so quickly of like the end of their lives for me, it doesn't really do much besides like show that, yeah, they did have a connection or like this was like a tragic part of their lives. Like I didn't feel what Bradley Cooper said in terms of him feeling more free once she died or like I didn't get any catharsis in terms of their relationship besides like they did love each other and you know, life was just messy. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't feel like I got much besides the emotional um, response from the audience in that that sequence. Well, we do get the Bradley Cooper, you know, Leonard Bernstein screaming into his pillow because he's so angry at himself because now that he's finally spending time with his best friend, it's in the end. It's at the end of her life. Yeah. Um, and I don't think the movie deserves its cancer sequence. And I don't think it deserves this Leonard Bernstein screaming into the pillow from the audience. I don't think it deserves us to be bought in. It hasn't done enough to show us how Leonard Bernstein feels like he's been contradictory. And I don't think it's done enough for us to actually know the woman who is dying on screen. Yeah. And I think Carrie Mulligan does a great job in the doctor's office. And then, and then when she's very, very sick at home and, and she meets her friends and talks to them again, and Mm -hmm. she's like, I don't want any other people coming here. That is like devastating. Even just saying it, I'm getting emotional. She's so good in that moment. And this is, this is a, a tragic ending to a person I wish I knew more about. Right. Right. And then, not in a Wikipedia way, honestly, just like in a deserving way. If you're going to do a two hour, you know, tens of million dollars budget, maybe more on a film like this, like give us more, um, especially because the movie's selling itself because it, as she is, you know, the maestro, like yeah. Felicia's maestro. And that's what the movie is doing in a subversive way that I just don't think is deserving right. of that yeah. reading. And it ends with her, the frame of, of her, face looking at the camera. Yeah. Well, what did you think about the screaming into the pillow? Cause I just thought that he was like overwhelmed and obviously like upset that his, his partner was dying. I think that's what the whole movie's missing. We're missing these beats of his life where he ultimately is turning to drugs and alcohol because of how he has been. Um, his identity has been suppressed by society and how he feels like he has the great responsibility of bringing classical music back to a new generation that doesn't understand it. And also how he has one friend who truly knows him and accepts yeah. him and that he would love a family with too. And how he is living this like paradox of a reality and we're missing these beats. So it's like a, a guilt scream. It is a guilt. Also, okay. I think. Yeah. And it's less relief, more guilt. And I think that's right. And I think we're missing multiple moments of that throughout the film. And so when we get to the part of him dancing with his students or one of his students, maybe many of them at the end of the film, which is great cinematography, it's a phenomenal scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it ends on a shot of Felicia. Yeah. Or I guess it ends with Leonard Bernstein, an older one, talking to interviewers and then 
saying any questions. Also, and one of the cringier moments of incredibly Felicia saying any, any questions and then him saying any questions. Yeah. It was really weird was when so they made her written, say it yeah. to Sarah Silverman's character. It was less weird when he said it. Just well, because he was being interviewed. So exactly. It felt like he could say exactly. any questions where she was having a conversation that felt casual and then like it yes. flipped. It was so strange tonally. Well, that's why I think the movie's through line doesn't work because its through line is that um, this is the person that is the true like creative genius. And Felicia is the person that gave Leonard Bernstein his creative confidence and a morale booster to be a great artist. But actually it was her that was like this successful artist that could never be. Mm. And I think the reason why Bradley Cooper and Josh Singer wrote for both of them to say that corny line is because they wanted the audience to be like, oh, to like connect, connect their, the dots. Yeah, I their see lives, how they're their both, artistry. Yeah. yeah, they both could have been great artists, but only one was able to be seen by society. Uh, and it tries to two cars cannot. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, Enzo. Um, yeah. So what did, I mean, what did you think about the the last frame of the black and white? the you know the cut from you know i guess it's three different it's crazy it's three different scenes it's it's leonard bernstein dancing with his students cutting back to an older leonard bernstein having an interview right. saying that he misses like the ghost of felicia basically and he feels terrible mm-hmm. and then the third cut of her like his memory of her in black right. and white when they first fell in love and you know, she turns to look at the screen and then it ends yeah like do you think it should have ended somewhere else there or do you think that's a fine ending i think this was an interesting case where it felt like there were two different endings in the movie and i mean there were yeah Yeah. like it's like bradley cooper wanted to have both things and you just like can't have both things because one is kind of like a darker uh you know ending and the other one is like far too sentimental in terms of uh idea that you didn't capitalize on and that this is carrie mulligan's story yeah so neither of the endings are deserving. Which yeah, is like exactly. The, the moodier ending and then the more like contemplative ending. Right. Yeah. So I think like in terms of the showing Carrie, Carrie Mulligan's face at the end and saying this is Felicia's story to really be explicit with the audience and what Bradley Cooper has said in interviews that this is her story mm-hmm. for me to, you know, we watch a lot of movies like and for me to understand at the very end that that's what he was telling us. Like, this is her story is something I should not realize at the end, right? Like I should realize that as the story builds through dialogue, through like the story development and it was never, you know, she was not like a fully developed character. And so for it to end on her face and say like, this was actually the maestro sure, just wasn't deserving. Like you said, but that's what I'm talking about in terms of this movie having potential it's like i wanted to believe like i was i was in it you know i was invested in in trying to be present for the story to eventually run with something that it was half realizing yeah and so i think the movie had potential but ultimately i just wanted either more of felicia if it is really felicia's movie or i wanted to see more of leonard bernstein if it if it's also exploring his experience and so i think it fell flat on both of those fronts And there are some people who are saying that this movie purposefully was not giving us more of an inside look into the characters because it wanted to be a movie about the shiny exterior of a public figure. I just think that's like 
kind of BS. Yeah, right? I don't absolutely. think Bradley Cooper wanted to have the audience at an arm's length. Yeah. I think he did want to let him into their anatomy of a marriage. Yes. I did think he wanted to dissect some complicated aspects yeah. Yeah, of, of their lives. And I, so I think it just did, didn't fully work, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I wanted the movie to end when he was dancing in the pink neon lights right. and like dancing uh, with his students and obviously like he- like heavily intoxicated and he's sweating profusely. Like that was really good cinematography, really good acting. The music playing is really dark and eerie. And I was like, yeah, where's this movie? Like this yeah. feels like a Bradley Cooper's tar. Like that's what the, that felt like or something different, like a mix of a star is born and something much darker um, right, where the visual is clearly showing us power dynamics Yeah, is showing us uh, like degrees of happiness in terms of the character. Yeah. yeah. Instead he's what Cooper's doing is implying that, look, this is actually what's been going on the nights where Felicia has been taking care of the family and been frustrated about this bad communication between her and Leonard this is what he's been doing on the nights of like making great art is like kind of losing himself. Um, Mm -hmm. and in a very tragic way because he can't be accepted out in public in the daylight. And so like that is, is a theme and an idea that is just not fully realized throughout, throughout the entire film. So I am a little bit frustrated with the film because I think it's really good in moments and then totally messy in others. Um, so that's unfortunate. I mean, I, I do want to give Bradley Cooper the benefit of the doubt for evolving the biopic because I do think this movie is doing that. So yeah. I hope it like is successful come awards, or I guess right now during award season. And then hopefully whatever Netflix's streaming expectations are that I guess I hope the film hits that because I don't think this, I mean, it's a possibility. This could be a studio issue because a maestro film that is really about Felicia that mm-hmm. is more developed probably would not be financed the same way a film about Leonard Bernstein would be. So this is just Bradley Cooper and Scorsese and Spielberg's way of kind of making a movie actually about the great woman behind the great man. I think that would be a little bit too charitable because I think the writing is still pretty poor when it comes to developing her character. But I I did want to throw that out there for anybody who did like this movie. And because I do think it's going to sit well in history in terms of evolving the expectations of what movies mm-hmm. like this deserve in the artist that they're exploring. Um, also, if you remove Bradley Cooper from this movie and it's just maestro, a film by, you know, another director, do you think that the industry would still love this movie? Because I think yeah. the industry loves Bradley Cooper because he's such a, a comeback story of somebody who obviously struggled with addiction. Like I said earlier, and Obviously, Hollywood is an industry uh, full of people who have struggled with those addiction with addiction because of it having this media apparatus that yeah. sensationalizes and profits off of addiction. And so, just like an exploitative inter- uh, industry, like it's totally. literally treating people as commodities. Yeah, yeah, something that May December tackled this year. And I think that Hollywood obviously wants him to succeed, and that's why A Star Is Born was so coveted and, and obviously it was a remake, but still it was. And I wonder if there's this like pop cultural conscious crossover that's happening where lovers of this film, a part of the Academy or other war bodies are like kind of projecting their own Cooper knowledge onto this film or their Hollywood addiction stories onto this film, because I actually question whether or not this movie is good enough to be getting the love it is getting right now. Like I don't, I don't really get that. It yeah. is talked about over, like I have this as maybe my 40th or, 
35th in that range best film of the year and on other best of list it's kind of in similar places for most people yeah so i don't know how it's getting as much push as it's getting maybe it's netflix well like i said netflix just uh released in the past week like each day uh guillermo del toro yes interview with him a behind the scenes or spike behind the streams they i think netflix calls it yeah but right they're like campaigning (laughs) yeah that's so sad netflix um but anyway they're like obviously campaigning right and yeah so I, I think there has to do something with that. Like it's maybe landing on a bunch of people's algorithms. People like Bradley Cooper. Most of our generation has seen the hangover. So sure, like that's people, true. people really do like him. Yeah. And I don't even know if people maybe know that he is directing. Um, but maybe not. Yeah. But I did have a couple friends reach out to me since it's dropped during the holiday season saying, should I watch this movie? And I was, you know, respectfully like, here's a, like a whole list of other movies that you can watch. <laughs> that you will enjoy because people don't watch, you know, like the general public watches like what streams on Netflix or what shows up on like whatever app they they purchase. This is genuinely a tough sit. Yeah. And so this is very much like you have to go in. I think like really under like thinking about like, this is a beautiful shot and like I'm interested in the filmmaking yeah, of this movie. You have movie. to be invested in the visual filmmaking, right. of course. And, yeah. uh, and again, like I think that if it did deliver on this, the, the themes here, like obviously, right, it, the movie is talking about sexuality and the idea of like history of prejudice in America the and cost I think, of ambition. Yeah. yeah, like these are all really interesting themes. I just don't think they deliver and I don't think they deliver for a broader audience. Whether Bradley Cooper was trying to make it for a broader audience is a different conversation, but it's just something that I wouldn't like recommend to someone because it is something that you have to like actively sit through because of the the storylines not yeah. Being again, like fully developed. So it, it, you have to be forgiving. You're like, this is a, an important film. Yeah. Like, and therefore uh, I will give it the time of day to like actually like uh, think about it. Yeah. After so it's to, over. But it's just because a movie is dealing with important themes doesn't mean it's automatically good. And this right. movie actually kind of proves that. So, yeah, to answer your question, like I, if Bradley Cooper's name was not attached to this. Yeah. I don't know that it would have as much interest. Can you imagine if Spielberg's name was though? People would be going crazy for this film. Yeah. yeah. He would have definitely done a more sentimental version of this. Uh, yeah. Maybe though a more complete story. I don't know. I'd I mean, love to see the Scorsese movie. Yeah, I would love to, uh, That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Me too. Be wild. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's get to extra credits. So first off, I want to shout out Mulligan as Felicia. Obviously, like we said, uh, the Carrie Mulligan casting was a really questionable choice considering Felicia's identity. Um, and her great performance doesn't mean that the casting was justified. It just means that she did really well as this conflicted artist and mother and wife. The performance is very compelling. I think the scene in the hospital is incredibly upsetting and uh, Mulligan withholding tears and emotion and then letting out it all out kind of at once mm-hmm. in the in the hospital room was like this weirdly profound moment that felt misplaced. But I was like, I didn't care because the release of anger and sadness from her and all this built up um, frustration that she had from being kind of exploited by Bernstein and now needing him as her supporter too, is this like contradiction and then them sitting together in the, in the park afterwards, back to back, Mm -hmm. just like how they did in the beginning of the film. I thought that was really sweet. And then obviously also Cooper is really great in that hospital scene too. He's kind of, we haven't really talked about his performance too much today. He's kind of a lot in this movie. Like it's a very loud and very showy performance. Yeah. Um, And he's, incredible in moments especially as like a supportive figure to felicia at the end of the movie that that ended up working for me but in other moments 
I felt like he didn't know exactly what tone to play Leonard Bernstein because he was playing him at so many different ages. Yeah. Or maybe that's exactly what he thought he was doing, which was right, like playing him at so many different ages. So he was going to be playing him with some different sensibilities and different energy. Mm-hmm. Um, it just never totally worked for me, though. I think people are going to be kind of lost in the makeup and the physicality of it all. Yeah, and it feels like a very get nominated. performance. Yes, yeah. yes, for sure. Uh, but my real extra credit goes to the filmmaking. I think stylistically, Cooper and his team have it. Uh, I love the the technical choices by changing up the aspect ratios, the color switching, the close-ups with tight proximity to the characters, then juxtapose where, where scenes where characters are at a very uh, a great distance. I think the design of, of the technical work in this movie feels very great. And then also you have the eras that this crew creates, the production design, the costumes, the makeup. It's all evocative of the time. And this crew really made this world alive and these incredible visuals that convey a mood is really needed when the themes are kind of up and down and sometimes conflict with one another. I especially loved the the final scene, like I said earlier, where Bernstein is this older instructor and the cinematography and the lighting, and the makeup and the sweat. All of that is really convincing. I thought this movie was surprisingly uh, the worst in its script, but in terms of its technical like power, mm-hmm. I thought it was really felt and actually pretty great and you can tell that bradley cooper is going to be making these energetic sometimes surrealist in moments uh electric films for a long time and i hope he continues making movies because obviously he's he has the style that we appreciate yeah yeah and he i appreciate that he's like taking swings you know yeah he's not just trying to look at movies that are like crowd pleasers or yeah so I, I think he's trying, you know, and he has a really good sense of going from maximalism to, to quiet moments. Yeah. And th- that's a really rare like pace that somebody has to like have like a tempo for like as a filmmaker that he has. Yeah, that's true. I, I think, okay, so I'll share my extra credit because first I wanted to just say that the movie looks gorgeous. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoyed, even though I didn't like love the movie in terms of the, the narrative delivering, I felt like, this is cinema, you yeah, know, like yeah. I, I mean, felt that's like the I power respect, he has. Yeah. yeah. All the choices that he's making in terms of making it a, a full like sensory experience. I, he talked about how wind is a major motif. And if you think back to all the moments where him and Carrie are talking, there is a lot of like wind and tree sounds that makes sense. Why I can't make out the dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> he also joked about that too. He was like, I don't have any voiceover. Maybe that's why everyone's saying they don't know what we're okay. saying in the movie. So yeah. I think he's aware of that f- feedback. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, so I think that is interesting and he's obviously like very focused on details. And again, the movie just looks beautiful. Yeah. But because the story fell short for me, uh, wasn't fully developed in, in aspects I wanted it to, the performances ultimately kept me in it. Yeah. So I think I just want to give extra credit to Carrie Mulligan mm-hmm. and to Bradley Cooper's performance because even though there were like very theatrical performances, I always felt like I was on a set. Yeah. I still love them. Like, yeah. <laughs> and they really kept me in it. They delivered on emotional lines. It was like, it was like I was watching segmented, like, you know, when you go to YouTube and you're like, I want to watch this scene the that scenes? just showed up. Yeah. You're so right. It's like there are a lot of amazing scenes yeah. stitched together. Like six really good scenes in this yeah. movie. Like him giving the interview in the back of, of in the pool where we were talking about. Right. Or like her, you know, Carrie Mulligan's reactions, like watching him conduct. Like there are or a him, bunch of great. Or him dancing on stage with the sailors. 
Like there are good scenes like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's ultimately how I I feel. But I think the performances kept it together for me. Yeah. So ultimately, I think we both believe Cooper crafted a film that is obviously technically impressive, visually memorable, but uh, like emotionally frustrating. Yeah. And it was kind of anti-punchy, which was surprising. And I think maybe we don't have a lot of sympathy for genius films. And if you are going to make a movie about deconstructing genius, it's got to be punchy. And unfortunately, it's or kind it just of, has to be a little honest, which means punchy, I guess. Yes, I guess that's what I mean. Yeah. And so it feels a little bit superficial in his characterizations toward the end of the film, unfortunately. So this movie just didn't take enough chances, which is really weird to say that because A Star is Born was special for its unpredictability. And that blend of operatic and emotional was like pure catharsis in that film. And this movie doesn't have that. And I'm not expecting the same tempo i guess like i put it earlier in every Mm -hmm. one of cooper's films but it feels like he wanted that yeah but regardless i'm excited to see what he has coming next yeah me too okay so iron claw yeah all right the iron claw directed by sean if summer doesn't sing in you then nothing sings in you and if nothing sings in you then you can't make music something she told me Any questions? There's no hate. There's no hate in my heart. 